All right, welcome to this episode of Xenoforce Reborn, and I'm your host, Doug Bendo, and today we have another exciting episode, which is episode two of Xenoforce Reborn. So, this episode, basically, um, I'm going to go over some more futuristic stuff, like things you can expect in the future. Um, the reasoning for it is that, you know, from a standpoint of, of where we are, like I said, we are about to do another release. It's going to be a major release. And um, you guys are going to see something that you normally um, have not seen from us before. Um, you just normally haven't seen it. And uh, part of it's going to be the fact that, you know, Nod and Scrin are going to be so drastically different from what they were before. Now, there was a bug hunt release that did come out where you got a little taste of what Nod was like. So, the way basically it works with Nod is you're going to pretty much have somewhat of a feel of what Nod is before we actually, you know, do the official release, you know, of the next version. I mean, like, that that shouldn't really be a surprise to anybody, or at least I don't think it would be a surprise if you keep up on this stuff. Um, there won't be a whole lot of changes from the bug hunt itself. Um, there will be some changes, though. And the changes that will be there will be, I want to say, very impactful to the actual faction. So, one of the things that I think people tend to forget sometimes is that you don't need to have necessarily a lot of changes to have an impactful effect of divinity. Um, and what I mean by that is you can define your version of what Nod or GDI or Scrin would be, or basically any other, you know, CNC uh, faction that you would talk about, whether it be like the USA or GLA or, or China or whatnot, um, you can, you can basically define them in their own right without necessarily making massive, you know, uh, changes in the game. Like for example, a lot of people, when they do mods, for some reason, they feel like they have to pump out brand new units for the mod that they do. You know, they think like, oh, this mod's going to be so much better than playing the original. Why? Because, oh yeah, we're just throwing in like 20 new units or 50 new units or 150 new units, you know. And that's one of the reasons to why, you know, mods really do end up in a situation where they become extremely unbalanced. And they get to a point where you're pumping in so many units that you're not actually seeing the effect that it's having on the mod. You know, like the first unit, it seemed like it was a great idea. The second unit seemed like it was a great idea. By the time you get to that 10th or 20th unit, it's like, okay, maybe you should just slow your roll. Maybe you just should do it just a little bit. I don't know. But... You know, from the standpoint of development, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that modders make is they want to use brand new, original, fresh content that's never been done before. And it's not so much that it's never been done before as much as it's their take on it when I say never been done before. Okay, so I'll, I'll do a great example. Um, you have the GDI uh, Titan Walker. Okay, you've got the GDI Titan Walker. 
And the GDI Titan Walker, you know, in Command and Conquer, uh, Tiberium Sun, in Firestorm Crisis, is something that you don't see in Command and Conquer, you know, um, Tiberium Wars 3. You just don't see it. You see it in Sun, you see it in the Firestorm's Crisis, but you don't see it in 3. <clears throat> now, ultimately what happens is, you know... There are enough people that, you know, bitch, moan, and groan about it, that, what does EA do? EA comes out with an expansion due to the demand of it, and they put it in Kane's Wrath. Now, I personally am not a big fan of Kane's Wrath due to the fact that the expansion that you pay for is essentially what should have been in the first, like in a game in the first place. Like, I think anybody who looks at the Command and Conquer, you know, story and looks at the content within the actual, you know, story itself and then looks at the installments of it can clearly come to a conclusion that you did not need to actually create. You did not need to create a, um, an expansion pack for Tiberium Wars that the consumer needed to go out and buy to fix the issues that you brought about in the creation of Tiberium Wars, you know, as a, uh, as a company, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't think that's just me. I think that's a lot of people, but to the point of, you know, modding and stuff like that, all too often what happens is people say, Oh, I'm going to create a mod and I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the Titan Walker in the game. That's what I'm going to do, because naturally, everybody wants to have the Titan Walker in the game. That's what's going to make my mod so different from everybody else's. And that was never done in, you know, in the original game by EA, so therefore, this is original and fresh. Now, you know, again, I go back to the whole thing about modding, which is, it's like, okay, so your idea is this. You want to put a Titan Walker into the game. All right, I, I get it you want to do that. Um, you're doing it because you believe that it's original and fresh because EA didn't do it in their version of Tiberium Wars. Never mind the fact that you have Kane's Wrath that currently exists. Okay, fine, I'll take it for what it is. But then, it's the same thing that like 20 other people have done. You know, it's like, when you go to mod Command and Conquer Tiberium Wars, what's the first thing you do? You throw in a Titan Walker. That's exactly what you do. Just It's just like a, a knee-jerk reaction. But remember what I said up here and said. I said that there's always a flip side when it comes to the balancing. And, you know, true to form, when you start talking about the balancing of inputting in, you know, 20... 40, 60, 120 units into a game, that can get pretty uh, tumultuous from a gameplay perspective. You know, you're trying to sit up here and balance and then counterbalance and do all these things to say, oh, this is why we have these brand new units in the game. And in reality, what you're doing is you're simply just pumping in units into a game because you've acquired units or created units in, in whatever fashion that you have and you basically have, I want to say, the implementation of coding down pat. So there is no 
shall we say, off to the spigot. So you can just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, and, and that's that. I mean, like, that's, that's typically how mods go for many creators. Until one day they sit up here and look at it, and they go, wait a minute, I've got all this stuff here, and yeah, it's not balanced, so now i got to go back and balance it. Now, to my point of what I'm talking about, let's go back to the Titan for a moment in time. So you want to stick the Titan in the game. Okay, fine. So, by sticking the Titan in the game, what, you know, what tier is it going to be at? Or what stage is it going to be at? Is it going to be a tier one unit? Is it going to be, you know, a tier two unit? Is it going to be a unit that's, you know, developed after you lay down your, you know, tech lab? Is it going to be something that comes right when you build the, you know, the uh, war factory? You know, how how is it basically defined, and in what way is it, you know, implemented onto the battlefield? But then more importantly than that, it then comes down to, okay, now that you've gotten that part out of the way, what is the purpose behind the unit? Like, what's the purpose of having a Titan if all you're going to do is run around and shoot things with basically the same kinetic power as a Predator tank, and then when it gets blown up, it falls over on its side and then just, you know, fades into, fades into the dirt or into the sand or whatever terrain, you know, it's walking on after there's an explosion of sorts. You know, like, in what way then did it make sense to ever produce the Titan when in reality... You could have just produced the Predator tank. You know, and this is something that I'm, I want you guys to understand. Like, when you talk about balancing, balancing can mean many, many things. I mean, balancing, for most people, means that just everything is fair. But also, when you talk about balancing in a game, you have to talk about the balance of concept. Meaning, why would you sit up here and create why would you create a walker that uses the same attack power as a regular frontline battle tank? And basically, when it dies, it dies the same way. The only difference is, is in one case, it falls over and fades into the ground on death. The other one... You know, you just got pieces that fly everywhere, and then all those pieces, you know, fade into the ground on death, while still having an explosion for each one. So, you can see where I'm coming from with this in this scenario, which is, what is the real difference that you have between a Titan and a Predator tank? So, when we start talking about the concept of, of balancing here, you know... There are many equations that you basically have to look at. And if you were to look at a Titan, for example, in this equation, well, you have to start with the fact that the Predator tank already exists. So either you are going to rebalance the Predator tank, which you could do, actually, or what you're going to do is you're going to change the balancing of the Titan so that you don't have redundancy. 
because one of the big killers to, I would say, virtually every mod that is out there is redundancy. Like, in other words, yeah, you put 20, 40, 60, 120 units brand new into the game, but the problem is, is that these units are all working off of the concept of redundancy. Like, the Titan Tank... I'm sorry, not the Titan Tank. That's our mod. The Titan Walker didn't actually have to be put into the game because it didn't do anything different than the Predator Tank, except probably move a little slower. And probably because it was a walker, it cost more money to produce. So in reality, what you did is you came out with a unit that was much slower in reality for the player to maneuver on the battlefield with, and then, in addition to that, the player, just for the sake of eye candy, sat up here and produced a unit that is like one to two hundred credits more than the stock Predator tank. Like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Yet, if you look at a lot of mods, this is what a lot of people do. Now, of course, I want to say you could always do the whole, well, this unit here was, you know, 800 in Tiberium Sun, so we made it 800, you know, in Tiberium Wars. And nobody in their right mind is going to believe that a Titan Walker stock is going to cost less than a Predator Tank stock. No one's going to believe that. Nobody. You know, just, it's it's not going to happen. And this is one of the real interesting things about balancing that people do tend to forget, is that people tend to forget that it's not enough to simply just put something in for the sake of balance sake. From the standpoint of GDI had walkers, therefore they need to go back into the game in order to balance out the technological curve between them and not. But also from the standpoint of balancing, what you have to look at is you have to look at the effect of what does the walker represent with within the scope of gameplay of the GDI player. So again, we go back to this concept of the Titan tank. And we, I'm sorry, I keep saying Titan tank, I mean Titan walker. Um, the Xenoforce Reborn mod actually has a Titan tank. But the Titan walker versus the Predator tank. And when you look at the concept of the walker, you have to ask yourself, what does the walker actually represent for GDI? What does it give a GDI player? Now, from a modding standpoint, um, and from a game representation standpoint, I would say that a Titan walker could actually offer quite a bit. Like, for example, because it's a walker, because it holds a kind of humanoid-esque you know, quality to it. Could you treat it like infantry? So, like, for example, with a Titan, the difference between it and a Predator tank would be the fact that one is considered to be a vehicle, the other one is considered to be a walker. Because the one is considered to be a walker, the one is built in squads, the other one is built as an actual vehicle. So, literally, the way it would work with the Titan system you know, in terms of the Titan Walker, what you would have is you would have a situation where you have a unit 
that's built not as a singular, but as a plural. So when you think of like an infantry team of, for example, um, rocketeers go out, you know, you, you normally get, you know, what is it? Two guys to a team, right? Two guys to a team. And if you really get lucky, you might have like a spotter or, you know, uh, you know, a leader or whatever the case might be. So you might have three guys. So, you know, when you think of a Titan Walker, now think of that squad of two or three. And that's exactly what you get with a Titan Walker, which right then and there, you have a real difference between a Predator tank and a, and a Titan Walker. Meaning that a Predator tank, in the way that it works, is produced off of a, uh, a number of one. Where a Titan Walker is produced in a group. So, when a player plays with Titan Walkers, in this scenario that I'm giving you, a player has the ability to effectively roam around with Walkers from a squad formation. Now, what does that really mean for the player on the battlefield? Well, that gives an entire different representation of what the Titan Walker is at that point. Because what you're looking at is you're looking at a mobile gun platform. You know, you're looking at a mobile gun platform. And and what I mean by that is you got to think of it like almost in a sense, if you will, like a machine gun where you produce, and it's true, you could also produce, I want to say multiple predator tanks and send them out there. But in the way that it works with the Titan unit itself specifically, you would have three walking units on the battlefield that would basically fire their guns in either unison or what in whatever formation that they do that would of course inflict greater greater damage onto any given opponent versus a predator tank being built in a singular one where it pretty much is fighting with its independency and how that can affect the unit in game, you know, it is not hard to see. I mean, like, for example, you could go out and create three predator tanks. And let's say that you do for the sake of the conversation. That's exactly what you do is you create three predator tanks. But then what happens is, is that you have to command them and micro them through a battlefield. But in commanding and micro microing them through a battlefield, what happens you know, the commands get, you know, switched around for one of the tanks, or one of the tanks doesn't get into position in the way that it needs to, and it can't fire. Where the walkers, on the other hand, the Titan walker that we had talked about, because it's produced in a squad formation, it's much easier to control. And the firing mechanisms are, again, much easier to control per walker. So you have that. The second thing that you have with a walker is the fact that it is a is a robot. Okay, which in turn means what? It's something salvageable. You know, so when, when you think about it for a moment here, and especially when we sit up here and think of, you know, the Titan Walker versus a Predator tank, not only did we sit up here and say that it could be squad-based, but now we're saying the unit could be salvageable. It could be a salvageable, like, Tier 1 unit. So you see how this effectively works for the Titan. You know, just in its representation, 
by giving it a squad formation system. And then in addition to that, allowing for there to be a huskable entity to it. To where, as the squad moves forward and takes losses, the squad basically would recompile itself while leaving a husk. Now, what that would mean for the player is that you would have a true definitive difference between the Titan Walker and the Predator Tank. The difference would partly be in the fact that just right out of the gate, one has the ability to be built in a plural, the other one is built in a singular. Then, in addition to that, you talk about the command systems of each one. Commanding 20 units is much harder to do than commanding one squad of 20. Then, in addition to that, what you also have is you have the huskable aspect of the Titan Walkers and the squad recompiling itself. So if you were to think about it, on death with the Titan Walker, each time a unit dies, it effectively spawns a husk. That's what it does. Now, obviously, each squad can spawn up to three husks. Now, in relationship to a Predator tank, when that sucker dies, it's dead, it's over, bam, there's nothing coming back. So now when you start looking at the two units, and you start looking at them from a balancing perspective, you then begin to get a better idea of why would you, why you would actually, I would say, um, put a Titan Walker in the game versus just using a Predator tank. Now, you guys might be wondering, why did I sit up here and just go through this analogy? Well, the reason why I went through this analogy is because it's, in many respects, when you are doing a mod, okay, and and I found this definitely to be the case time and time over again, what happens is this, is you think as a developer that every idea that you come out with is either a good idea or it is a great idea. You know, that's, that's what you tend to believe as a developer. And you also believe that every single unit you produce is a great unit. Like, every unit you produce needs to be in there because you came up with the idea for the unit. But then once when it comes down to true balancing, you know, you tend to whiff it. You know, you do. It's, it's like one of those things where you think, oh, you know what, it's balanced because I like the way the game plays, and then that's that. When in reality... There's more to that. You know, you can put a unit into a game and it can affect a faction in a number of different ways. Like, for example, what is the cost of the unit? Okay, so how does that impact economy? You know, if you're dealing with a faction that normally has units that cost between 100 to 2,000 credits, well, to introduce units into that faction that consume three or four or five thousand credits is a huge deal. The reason for it is you're, you know, doing anywhere from 150% to 
250% of the highest end costing stock units that currently exist for that faction. Prior to, obviously, you throwing in your own stuff as a developer. So, you know, of course, again, it eats into the economy. So can that faction's economy still proper functionally? I'm sorry, can can a proper, uh, can it function properly? There we go. It's been a long day, guys. It's been a long day. But can it function properly? All right, so you have that. Then you also have, aside from an economic standpoint, a time development element that you have to look at. Like, in other words, how long does it actually take to produce this unit? So if we worked off of a system where for every 100 credits, it's one second of development time, when you start throwing in, you know, three, four, five thousand credit units, what does that then mean? Well, it means that you're slowing down your production process. You know, the, the ability to produce in a timely manner based on how that faction originally was intended. So you could have thought, looking at a faction from a development standpoint, oh, well, the problem with this faction is it doesn't have any real heavy abilities. You know, it doesn't have any real heavy heavy abilities. Therefore, I'm going to put this into the game and fix this issue. I'm going to give them the heavy units that they need in order to succeed. And what you ultimately do in doing that is you miss the whole point of how the faction was actually intended to be created. See, it may have never been a fact that the faction itself didn't have heavy units, so therefore that's why it constantly was a loser from your style of gameplay, you know, that, that, that in and of itself, I wouldn't say is necessarily a true factor on which to judge a faction. Because again, it comes down to your style of gameplay. If the original intent of the faction were to have a faction that has the ability to literally crank out or effectively spam you know, units of a certain quality within a certain time frame, then obviously to meet those deadlines for what the faction should be able to do under certain economy restrictions, like what you have in in a CNC setup, then obviously you're going to have a range of units that can do it and a range of units that can't do it. But if your game style is such where you rely on heavier units in terms of gameplay, which in turn mean that units have longer build times and they have higher costs, then that basically erodes away at the original concept of the faction and how the faction was originally set up to be played with. So again, you know, when we have this discussion here about balancing... 
you know, um, which this wasn't actually, I think, originally supposed to be the discussion, in its entirety at least. But when we have this, you know, conversation about balancing, the thing that you guys have to understand as you listen to this episode is you have to understand that balancing means more than just one thing, which is throwing in units that have abilities that you like, that you feel flush out the faction itself. Because again, it goes down to, or comes down to, the fact that what you're, what you're looking at here is a system where the concept or the idea of a faction can be based in such a way where the units that they're allotted is based on cost and based on time development. And the tactics that effectively you are supposed to implement with that given faction should coordinate with those two elements. Now, there's another thing that you can look at as well. And the other thing that you could look at, aside from, obviously, time and cost, which I think are two of the the big, you know... um, the big factors that you should always look at in terms of balancing is you have to look at placeholdment. You know, as a placeholder, where does this new unit actually lie? Like, what does it actually affect in terms of everybody else in the rest of the line? And here's a great example that I that I would give you. Okay, here here's a great example that I would give you. <laughs> So you take Nod, okay? You take Nod. And Nod is a very interesting faction in the CNC universe of Tiberium Wars. Um, and, and the reasoning for it is Nod has the ability to basically do fast attacks. They do, you know. They, they have the ability to pump out, you know, attack bikes, um, take, you know, a whole group of them, run over to a Tiberium field where, you know, you have um, enemy harvesters refining the uh, Tiberium. The attack bikes go in, blow the harvesters up, and then pretty much get on out of there. Like, like that's, you know, I'd say a hit-and-run tactic that Nod's got that, that can work pretty effective for them. You know. But on the flip side of things... Um, one of the problems that you have with Nod, you know, just generally in the CNC universe, is Nod really doesn't have heavy mechanized armor. They don't. You know, I mean, they have powerful units, don't get me wrong, but they don't have heavy mechanized armor. Now, a person might look at that and say, well, it, you know, for, for what it is and for what it's worth, it really shouldn't matter. You know, that Nod doesn't have mechanized armor because you have, effectively, the hit-and-run tactics and things like that. Like, in other words, you can concentrate on softer targets with the opposing player rather than trying to go after heavier targets of the opposing player. Now, that is true up until you get to a certain part of it, you know, of any given game. And... One thing in RTS that I found is pretty much all battles go through the same stages of gameplay, which is beginning gameplay, 
Then you have, you know, um, middle gameplay. Then you have, ep- or I want to say ending gameplay. And then you end up into what's called epic gameplay. Now, real quickly, I'll, I'll talk about how these things work. So, beginning gameplay is basically how everybody starts off. You know, are, are you going to try to do, like, an eco-drive? Are you going to basically try to rush your opponent? Like, what's the deal with what you're trying to do? Are you just trying to sit up here and, <clears throat> you know, just uh, establish yourself and be, you know, and, and essentially slowly expand across the board, you know, in, in a turtle-ish form, you know, uh, of game style? Like, what is it you are trying to do? Okay. Then you get into middle gameplay. And in, in, in your middle gameplay, or mid-gameplay, as I like to call it, because I normally call it mid-gameplay, your mid-gameplay that you have basically deals with, okay, now that everything's down, you're going to start working on this stuff, you know. And, and the stuff can sit up here and be like your tech centers. The stuff can be, you know, devising or mapping out how your base is actually going to be uh, from a gameplay perspective, uh, your stuff can be, you know, implementing the supply chains that are going to take place, you know, through, like, the concept of harvester to Tiberium refineries, um, and how you're going to secure those, you know, supply lines and stuff, um, it, and that's essentially your, your mid-gameplay. Then, of course, you have ending gameplay, and ending gameplay is basically where, You've amassed your forces that you plan to amass, and then you go for the big push. You know, you go for that big push. You're, you, you've, you've had your skirmishes here and there, but you're really going to go for that big push now. You're really going to sit up here and try to drive it into the enemy. Your goal is to drive them off the map. It is to kill every conceivable structure that your opponent has in order to take them down. That's exactly what you're trying to do. You know, you're trying to wipe them out. You're trying to annihilate them. Annihilate them, I'm sorry. And in doing so, you know, there's that offensive that takes place, but then, of course, then there's that counter-offensive, you know, where you basically were able to drive right into the heart of their base, but somehow they had a couple of units that were able to sit up here and, you know whittle away at your forces so you no longer have the attack power that you had started off with, obviously, at the beginning of the assault, and being the smart tactician that you are, you decide to pull your stuff back. Because <laughs> it's clearly not going to work the way you expect it to. So then what happens is you get into the epic gameplay. Now, the difference between ending gameplay and epic gameplay is this. When you're at the end stage, okay, of gameplay, okay, like ending game, the whole point behind it is, if it would have worked, it would have been over. You know, it would have been over. You know, your mid worked the way it was supposed to, so now you're on to the ending stage, and if the ending stage would have worked, it would have been over. But of course what happens is the opposing force was able to crank out, like, that epic unit right when they needed to, okay? Or 
you know, that GDI player was able to do that Kodiak, you know, drop with the Rexes right when they needed to. And then all of a sudden what happens is everything changes. The whole board changes. Like, like your infrastructure is completely established. Their infrastructure is completely established. You've got eco all over the place that you're actually running, you know, straight through, you know, um, given each, you know, player in the game, everything is working out just fine. But what happens then is in that moment where you went to drive through your opponent and they were able to deploy their epic unit on the battlefield, which in turn was able to basically stall your advancing force from basically bulldozing them over and winning you the game, you then have to go back and rethink what you're going to do. And of course, when you get to epic gameplay, it's about, okay, now I've got to go all out. Now I've got to go big. Now, you know, the smallest unit that I can basically have in the game has got to be normally the toughest unit that you have on the front lines. And you get into that that concept of we've gone from having a battle into we're actually going to have a war. You know, now if you guys have played the Xenoforce Reborn mod, you know what I'm talking about here. You know exactly what I'm talking about in these stages. Beginning gameplay, mid-game play, ending gameplay, and then epic gameplay. You know exactly what it is. And exactly how it works. And that is literally how great RTS has actually fought. Any any RTS I've ever played, it has been like that. And like, for example, one of the reasons to why I was willing to play um, Ryan, you know, Azusa, and I was willing to play Charles in, in a tri-tet was because of the epic game factor. It was. Like, you don't get in Command and Conquer General's Xenoforce, you know, you don't get a colony dropped on your base and a Macross cannon fired at you and then have a force bigger than the two opposing forces when it's all said and done just by chance. That's not how it works. Like, you are at a point of epic status. Like, when the main guns from the Macross can't sit up here and obliterate the entire invasion force that it's going up against. That tells you something right there. You know, now, when it can't kill off even half, that tells you something right there. When it can't kill off even a quarter, that tells you something right there. You know, and when the Earth Federation's up here dropping a colony to try to wipe out the, your base infrastructure, again, that tells you something right there. Should I say, seek Xeon? But my, my point to what I'm telling you guys is this, is there are different stages to how RTS works. And if you're dealing with a system where you have a non-unit cap. Like, in other words, you, you don't have a number that you have to go by 
and then in terms of number of units, and then that's it. You know, it's not like StarCraft where you get like, you know, a 200, you know, unit cap or Empire Earth, like the original where you got like a 1200, you, you know, unit cap, or I believe it was, was it Rise of Nations or Rise of Legends? I can't remember now. Anyways, where you had like a 90 unit cap, you know, um, this is one of the things that allows Command and Conquer in terms of its engine to literally be Command and Conquer is the fact that when you play, you know, generals or when you play Tiberium Wars, you know, you have the ability to unleash epic gameplay in a way that you normally couldn't. So we go back to what I set up here and said, which was the idea that, you know, the Rex has come down, all right, the Kodiaks come down with it. You know, GDI clearly is pushing back anything the Earth Federation had going on or not had going on or the Skrin had going on or whoever had going on with whatever they were trying to go on with, all right? That's what you have there. And then what you have as a result is all of a sudden, oh, guess what? Another GDI cruiser pops up from the spaceport. Spaceport 1. Ha! Huh. And being the smart player that you are, okay, the smart player that you are, as the opposing player to the other force, you happen to have, like, two other spaceports scattered around, and, yep, then comes up another GDI Kodiak, and then, yep, here comes up another GDI Kodiak. <laughs> so what happens is, as a player, you know... As a player in this situation, you've got not just two epic units that descended on the battlefield through your your uh, you know power bar. You don't have just a a Rex that came along with them that controls you know the ion cannon um, sat command abilities. But you've also got, you know, like three other Kodiaks that basically, within a 30-second time frame, you know, popped up, bam, bam, and bam. Or we'll say in a minute and a half. 30 seconds to a minute and a half. you got like three more Kodiaks that popped up. And then all of a sudden now, your epic units are beginning to overshadow the other units that you had. And at this point, as the player that was about to get wiped off the map, or it looked like you were going to get wiped off the map, what happens? You start amassing heavier tanks, like mammoth tanks. You start amassing, you know, uh, Junkernauts. You know, you, you start basically drilling down to using those tanks with the, you know, with the rail cannons and whatnot. And, and you're bringing the pain, and you're going to bring it hard. That there is epic gameplay. Because what happens is, all of a sudden now, you went from having heavy tanks to literally, within a matter of minutes, developing a full-fledged fleet. Do you see how this works now from a development standpoint? You know, you were GDI. You were 
on the fence. You were going to be wiped off the map. But what happened was the Kodiaks came down and they took care of business. <laughs> and then the Rex fell after the Kodiaks did and then mopped up what was left. And then what happened was your spaceports finally finished within 30 seconds to a minute and a half afterwards the deployments of their Kodiaks. So now literally you have a fleet. You were fighting with tanks a minute ago, main battle tanks, fighting with some Predator tanks, maybe had some Titan tanks in there, maybe had a couple Mammoth tanks in there. But now all of a sudden you actually have a GDI Space Command fleet. This is what epic gameplay is. Now, not to lose sight of where I was going with this, allow me to backtrack. Okay? Which is, the thing that you have to understand is, we have to go back to the concept of placeholders. And when you basically infuse a faction with brand new units, or when you're creating a faction um, of, you know, original concept, you always have to look at your placeholders. And, you know, you talk about those non-attack bikes, and you talk about the idea that they have the ability to do hit-and-run tactics, the fact that they have the ability to basically either stall or shut down a, um, you know, a Tiberium refinery-based economy, you know, from the beginning point of the game. But what happens from a placeholder perspective is then you run into, with these attack bikes, when do they meet their end of shelf life? And when is that definitively understood? Now, you know, there's always the whole, well, what we can do is give the attack bikes an upgrade, so they do twice the amount of damage than what they normally would do. I mean, yeah, you could do that. That's always a possibility. You know, there's also always the possibility that you give the attack bikes some upgraded ability, you know, whether it's stealth detection or whether it is, you know, um, stealth uh, enabling or whatever the the fact may be, so that the unit has, again, a longer shelf life on the battlefield. But again, what happens to it as a placeholder? And this is one of the real interesting things when you talk about balancing is, is placeholders, because what happens is this, all too often, okay, then we're about to go to the all too often moment again. Developers get caught in a situation where... And, and this happened with EA2, by the way, um, where you create a collection of units. And the idea is these units are intended to be used. They're intended to be used within the given premise that you, you obviously created them. But that intent, nine times out of ten, is misunderstood by the players. Now, understand, 
that the misunderstanding of it by the players is what allows one player to be better than another in many cases. Like, in other words, when you want to rank players, like, if you're talking about who's the best CNC player um, in terms of Tiberium War or Kane's Wrath uh, or Generals, if you really want to sit up here and rank those players, large in part, the easiest way to rank those players is by how well they understand the units within any given faction and how well were they able to drive those units in a given scenario that they were faced with. That's just the reality of it. Like, right there, that is literally the reality of it. So, when we talk about these attack bikes, you know, yeah, they're good at the beginning of the game. Yeah, you know, they get a attack upgrade of some kind or a support upgrade of some kind. But when GDI starts rolling out the Mammoth tanks, realistically, what are attack bikes going to do to that? From a balancing perspective. Meaning, let's assume that you've about, you have balanced attack power of every unit in the game. Let's assume that you've balanced cost of every unit in the game, and you've balanced health and armor, every unit in the game. Let's let's make the assumption that you've done all those things perfectly. Then you have to know that if you did that balancing, that there is no way on earth that, you know, a group of attack bikes are going to be taking down a mammoth tank with ease. It's just not going to happen. It's not. You, you can't take four attack bikes and take down a mammoth tank. It, it wouldn't happen like that. Honestly, you can't take eight attack bikes and take down a mammoth tank. Now, think about it from a cost perspective of what I'm saying here. Okay, just think about it from a cost perspective. All right? Let's say that you do a rebalancing, and under the rebalancing, you obviously come up with a brand new equation of cost. And let's say for the sake of the conversation that your mammoth tank is going to cost you, we'll say, 3500 and let's say that each attack bike will cost you, under the concept of new balancing, um, for the sake of the conversation, we'll say 500 We'll do the division. You know, 35 divided by 5 equals 7. So, you take 7 attack bikes, they go out onto the battlefield, and they run into a mammoth tank. Okay? They run into a mammoth tank. The whole idea is that these seven attack bikes, from an equation perspective, should be able to kill off the mammoth tank. They should have a chance of doing so. And the reason why they should be, have a chance of doing so is because their, when they were balanced out, their cost hit. It hit 500. Therefore, if you have seven attack bikes you should be able to take out one Mammoth Tank, because the Mammoth Tank is only 3,500. However, you know, encounter after encounter after encounter after encounter shows, no, the Mammoth Tank can easily sit up here and crush, you know, and I'm not talking, like, literally, um, but figuratively, crush seven attack bikes. 
you know, and, and, and the reason for it is simple. Although you have an equation that may be perfect in every way, shape, and form, what happens is you're still talking about the mammoth tank being a tier three unit for the sake of our conversation here versus an attack bike being a tier one unit. Like in other words, as a, from the standpoint of a placeholder, what happens is the mammoth tank itself is at a higher slot in place holding because all those add-ons to that tank add up. And it gives it a greater capability beyond that of what its cost would suggest. Because remember, you've got to factor in, you know, things like DPS, like, you know, damage per second, you know, but you've also got to, you know, factor in, you know, um, the resistance of, of what the tank is going to have in terms of, you know, uh, kinetics or ballistics or, or what have you not. You've also got to factor in that you're talking about a quad tread, you know, versus a dual tread in, in terms of the type of tank that a mammoth tank is. And then, of course, you got to sit up here and factor in its own lethal firepower. The fact that that thing has like 200 and whatever millimeter cannons, and then it's got two rocket pods on top of that. On each side. And not to mention, the mammoth tank itself could possibly, in some way, shape, or form, could possibly actually, I don't know, have its own support abilities. A tank that big probably should. So what happens is the the Nod player has been playing with these these attack bikes. And the Nod player believes that with these attack bikes, they pretty much should be able to start from beginning to, we'll say, in-game play. That's what they should be able to do with the attack bikes. But what happens is during mid-game play, late mid-game play, before you're getting to end, you know, in-game play, what happens is the player from GDI starts rolling out these mammoth tanks. And now all of a sudden, where the attack bikes were were effectively, you know, doing their job of hit and run, harass, and then, you know, sniping down, if you will, um, opposing units, the attack bike's ability comes to a screeching halt. Because it can't deal with something like a mammoth tank. So from a place-holding ability standpoint, what you end up finding out is this. The attack bike could potentially, could potentially be great against harvesters, could be or potentially great against, you know, predator tanks. But there's no way on earth that thing's going up against a mammoth tank. So then what happens as a nod player? Well, as a nod player, you need to find something else. Whatever that something else is. In order to take care of the threat of the mammoth tank. But the problem that you run into 
as a Nod player. The problem that you run into is Nod doesn't have anything heavy enough to face that in a 101 conflict. Within, I want to say, proportionality. Now, what I mean by that is this. Again, we're thinking about the placeholder concept here. Okay? Many players, including the, you know, EA's AI, get trapped in a scenario where they try to stretch the placeholding abilities of light mechanized divisions. And the reason why they do it is because they're low cost and they're highly effective. That, that's the general concept behind it. What they tend to forget is that when you look at placeholding abilities, meaning how long should that unit, based on the pace of the battle, stay on the battlefield? When do you swap it out for something else? Or more importantly, if you lose a battle, if you lose a battle, where was the mistake made in the ill-advised investments in a light mechanized unit versus the transitioning to heavy mechanized units. Do you guys, I hope you're, you know, picking up, you know, what I'm dropping here because that's what you should be doing with this. This is one of the key mistakes that developers make and it's one of the key mistakes that even EA made. And, and, you know, in the, in the original concept of, you know, um, Tiberium Wars and Kane's Wrath, and even I'd go as far as saying Tiberium Twilight. You know, you've got to be able to simply pace out a game where a game should be able to go from beginning to mid to ending to epic. That's pretty much how it works. But what happens is, is that you have effectively a placeholding concept. Every unit that you put in the line of selection for a player falls under a placeholding concept. It comes down to how long can that unit be on the battlefield until its shelf life has expired and you have to move on to an alternative. But of course, the problem to moving on to an alternative is what? It's understanding what the alternative is. Now, the alternative can be dictated, obviously, by the opposing force that you're facing, okay, and what they're doing to counter what you're doing. I mean, like, that's one way to pick out the, the um, I want to say, the uh, alternative unit, okay, within placeholding. But I would go one step further than that and say, do you have units that actually truly speak to the methodology of the technological parameters that work within that faction. But then in doing that, they give you a direct link to an alternative that can be universally seen by all players. So here's my, here's my example to what I'm talking about here. Okay, we go back to the idea of the attack bike. All right, you have a scenario where the player is sending out the attack bikes. You know, 
they're slowing down, you know, the economy of, in this case, we'll say an Earth Federation player. That's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're attacking, you know, the, uh, the gun tank harvesters and they're, you know, laying into those and they're, you know, really throwing down critical damage on these harvesters and in some cases taking them out. So the player is doing this with the attack bikes, not attack bikes. Then what happens though is the Earth Federation player decides that they're going to deploy at some later, you know, point in the event, you know, some GM gun cannon twos. Now, you know, for those of you guys who have seen Gundam, and if you've seen 0083, you know that the GM gun cannon two is a pretty tough unit. In fact, effectively what it is, is a GM Customs wrapped up in gun cannon two. You know, I'm sorry, it's, it's wrapped up in a, um, what am I talking about gun cannon two? It, well, it is technically wrapped up in a gun cannon support, uh, support suit. That's exactly what it is. You know, it's, it's like a, a GM wrapped up in battle armor. It's basically, you know, what, what the, uh, the whole setup is, the whole shebang. And if you've seen double O, you know, like 83, you know, you probably remember the, uh, the scene where a camera's fleet goes out and attacks, you know, GPO one and the Albion. And you probably remember that there are two things that came out of that battle. All right. The first thing that came out of that battle was that GPO one truly needed to have those upgrades for becoming full Vernian. Like there was a real, there was a real reasoning for it. You know, there there was, and and it wasn't some like, oh, we just need to do these upgrades for the sake of upgrades within a storyline. You know, you didn't have that nonsense going on. You know, it's like he went out there, you know, the combat computer wasn't, wasn't actually, uh, wasn't adapted to space. And Kowalraki basically got his ass handed to him by cameras, you know, Commander Delguk. But because GPO-1 was, you know, beam resistant, you know, she couldn't kill it. Even though she was using, you know, a mega particle beam cannon, she couldn't kill that thing. <laughs> you know, and she was like, damn, that thing's armor. Why can't it die? So on and so forth, you know. And honestly, that was actually one of the coolest things, or one of the coolest, just period, in terms of Gundam, one of the coolest scenes ever. You know, especially when he comes back, you know, comes back to the Albion, and his Gundam's like falling apart, but clearly it, it, it's not even close to the state of being destroyed. It's just, it's been worn down from all that abuse that it took. And you realistically don't even see another mobile suit that is beam resistant in the way that that one is. Until the O in Double Zeta Gundam. I mean, like, it's, it's pretty remarkable, you know, how that works. But there's another thing that happened in that battle that was equally as impressive, which was the GM Gun Cannon 2. And how the GM Gun Cannon 2, um, went up against the Marine Galgoogs, and although it couldn't outmaneuver it, you know, when the Marine Galgoogs were using, you know, their, um, using their 90 millimeter, you know, anti-mecha machine gun rounds, they couldn't pierce the armor of 
you know, the gun cannon too. They couldn't do that. You know, they hit that thing at like point blank range and they couldn't do it at all. It, it wasn't even close. And then, of course, also what happened on top of that, you know, if you look at Gundam 0083 in correlation to Gundam 00 or 0080, War in a Pocket, you see what it takes to crack that armor with Gundam Alex going up against the camphor when it has to use the demolition chain to basically take down Gundam Alex and in the end, because Gundam Alex was, you know, fully armored, you know, using it, you know, uh, was basically in its fully armored mode, it didn't have a scratch on it. The only thing that got charred up was, of course, the armor, you know, it's, it's extended armor. You know, it's extended armor plating. I mean, like, that was the only thing that actually took damage. Now, take that concept of what I just told you about Gundam Alex and the camphor, okay? You have the same composite armor plating on the GM Gun Cannon 2, okay? Or the GM Custom Gun Cannon 2, however you like to, you would like to sit up here and phrase that whole element of it. Because it is a GM Custom inside Gundam Alex's, you know, fully armor plating. That's exactly what it is. All right. In fact, the GM Custom is actually based off of Gundam Alex. But anyways, um, you take that unit, okay? So remember, we have a scenario where you have these attack bikes going in, and the attack bikes are doing like this, that, and the other. Two, I want to say the um, gun tank refineries, and uh, I'm sorry, not, not gun tank refineries, but the gun tank harvesters, and what have you not. And then, of course, what happens is the player decides at a later point during the, the skirmish that they're going to deploy. They're going to deploy these, you know, GM custom gun cannon 2 based units. That's what they're going to do. And as a result, what happens all of a sudden now is the Earth Federation player is now deploying these mid-range artillery-based units that have armor that is basically equivalent to, for the sake of the conversation, we will say, a GDI mammoth tank. Now, for for you people who really don't understand, you know, the whole concept of Gundam, all right, I would put it to you like this. Think of it as a Junkernaut in Command & Conquer Tiberium Wars getting an extra layer of armor protection with its own HP system as well that is equivalent to that of a Mammoth Tanks. And that's exactly what you have there with the GM Custom Gun Cannon 2 based unit. That's exactly what you have. Like, if you want to if you want to think of it in terms of GDI terms, because we've been talking about GDI a lot during this uh during this uh, session here, think of it like that. Think of it as a junker knot that literally is encased in extended armor plating that the extended armor plating is equivalent to a, a mammoth tanks. You know, th that's what it is. 
And that's exactly what we're talking about here with the Earth Federation player having a GM custom gun cannon two base system. Now, again, um, when when I you know think about this um, in the way that I look at it and in the way that I personally see this, okay. If you were talking about not attack bikes going in, taking out, you know, some gun tank harvesters, okay, and then a player deploys some GM custom, you know, gun, gun cannon two units, it, those attack bikes are done. Their shelf life is over. You know, now realistically, their shelf life probably would have been over when they went up against, you know, some GM custom units. Okay, and those things just got shot to smithereens by a GM Custom. Because remember, you are talking about attack bikes. And you have to remember that a motorbike is not that that heavy of a thing. If you compare it to, you know, an armored car, or dare I say a tank, let alone like a, a quad tread tank. All right, a motorbike isn't that impressive whatsoever. I don't care what rockets you got on that sucker. Okay, it, it's not that impressive. You know, now, unless you plan to sit up here and use the motorbike as a, you know, a kind of um, suicide drone, then no, it's you're just not going to get that kind of effect that you're looking for. It, it's just not going to happen. So you can see from a placeholder standpoint how this would work. Yeah, your attack bikes did really well, but when the Earth Federation player said, forget this, I'm going to sit up here and lay down some GM Customs and some GM Custom Gun Cannon 2 mobile suits, that pretty much just killed it right there. You know, that killed it right there for the Nod player to stick with this idea of a hit and run. And the reason for it is you're talking about mid-range artillery. You're also talking from, from I want to say, the uh, the GM Custom Gun Cannon 2 unit. You're also talking about, I want to say, um, you know, you're talking about anti-mecha machine gun assault rifles. You know, so you you know they're going to make Swiss cheese out of, out of attack bikes. You know, and, and the list goes on and on and on of what you're talking about, you know. And also, don't forget, you have a certain level of maneuverability with those mobile suits that can definitely give those attack bikes a run for their money, or at least put them through their paces. So technologically, you have, like, way too big of a divide there. Except when you're talking about the Earth Federation, this is what they use primarily as a form of stock. Not necessarily, necessarily to that level, but if you were talking about, for example you know, the GM Kaya and the Power GM, you know, or if we were talking about, you know, the RGM, you know, uh, 79 or whatever other GM you'd like to talk about that would be ground-based. You know, this is, this is the thing here, which is there comes a point where units lose their shelf life. You know, it's expired and, when you talk about the concept of beginning, you know, mid, ending, and then epic gameplay, you have to look at something like an attack bike and go, okay, how long are you really going to last in this? Are you really only going to last for for beginning to late 
to late mid. Which means ending game play to epic game play, you're just totally worthless. And then it also comes down after that fact of, okay, do I recognize this as the actual player? Like, in other words, is the fact, is the faction that I'm dealing with as the player balanced in a way of placeholding where transitionally I understand that I have to move from the attack bike to the, shall we say, stealth tank in this place, uh, or in this case, I'm sorry, in this place, in this case, um, move to the stealth tank in this case and have it replace what I was doing with the attack bike. Which, if you think about it, the stealth tank really is, in the way that it's built, a glorified nod attack bike. Except for the fact, you know, I mean, like, the differences are, are pretty clear. You know, you've got a more robust missile system, number one. Number two, you've got a little more armor, although I would say, realistically, for what it costs and, you know, what it would be from a balancing perspective from an attack bike the armor itself wouldn't be, like, overly impressive. But number three, you have, you know, your support survival mechanism, which is obviously your stealth. You've got that. So, you know, again, having a player that can truly coordinate these kind of units on a battlefield and then, you know, micro them through, uh, a, you know, a given a given event or macro through, depending on how you... you um, want to be in terms of the level of meticulousness of gameplay with them, um, you effectively, I would say effectively in this case, effectively have your upgrade right there from a technological perspective and from the next logical, you know, just jump up. But again, when you start looking at something like a, a GM, gun cannon, you know, um, a GM custom gun cannon 2 base system, even, you know, a not stealth tank, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be holding its ground in terms of just sheer firepower. It's not going to happen. It, it just doesn't have that kind of firepower that it takes to, to take down, you know, the extended armor of a Gundam Alex slash gun cannon to system. It, it was never designed for that. It doesn't mean that it can't inflict damage on it. It can, but it's not going to do anything that the, you know, GM custom gun cannon two wouldn't be able to basically, you know, deal with from using its, you know, beam artillery cannons. Y you guys get my point of what I'm talking about here. You know, so, then, of course, if we're talking about technologically climbing up the totem pole, so you go from attack bike to stealth tank to what would be the next unit. And that's that, that there's the, the interesting question. Your attack bike is a tier one unit. Your stealth tank would be a, shall I say, tier three unit for the sake of the conversation. So you now need to have a tier four or you need to have a tier 5, which means it's like a tier X, essentially. In other words, you're not going any higher than a tier 5. So what do you do? Well, in the not assortment, that would be the salamander. 
for the sake of our conversation here. So what happens is from Nod's technological perspective, it works like this. Build a little bike, put some rockets on it. Build a tank, give it some stealth, put more, you know, put more rocket launchers on it. When that fails, you build a capital ship class cruiser, give it some stealth, and then you put some missiles on that, or put some rockets on that. That's what you do. And this is where the placeholder concept actually falls into play. It's the fact that the player can identify the threat and say, okay, I should have given this attack bike up a while ago, and I should have instead went with the stealth tank. Now, for reasons of expediency, and looking at what the opposing player from the Earth Federation is now placing out there, what I now need to do is I need to make a transition from effectively the stealth tank being the unit of you know, harassment to effectively the salamander, the Nod salamander being my unit choice of harassment. Now, when we talk about the concept of placeholding here and we talk about, you know, balancing and how it plays out, what it means is this. By the time you get to, let's say, end to epic gameplay, all right, you have, re- you have roles that have shifted they would have shifted among units within the placeholding setup. Okay, so attack bikes realistically probably wouldn't be anything more effective than Rocketeers at once when you get to that end epic gameplay setup. Especially when you get up into epic, attack bikes aren't going to be any more effective than Rocketeers. All right, when you're on that on that epic playing field. Your stealth tanks effectively are going to be what your attack bikes were at beginning gameplay. That's what you're going to have there. And then, of course, your your Salamander is ultimately, during epic gameplay, going to be what your stealth tank would have been during mid-gameplay. Whether we're talking, you know, late-mid or early, mid, that's exactly what your salamander would be. You know, this here's the place-holding concept. Like, in the way that it works for placeholding, uh, or placeholders for units, um, in terms of what's being produced, what you have to understand here, from a development standpoint, is that, as developers, we have to sit up here and look at it and say, okay, how can a faction, you know, cognitively shift from one set to another set, and comprehensively it flows like a river. That's the key, and and, and effectively that's the challenge to balancing. That's one of the biggest challenges to balancing. If, if If you're asking me what is the greatest challenge to balancing, I would probably realistically say that. Because all too often what happens is this. You know, a person might say, okay, well, here's how we're going to do it. What we're going to do is we're going to do attack bike, stealth tank, and then we're going to do redeemer. 
or it's attacked by stealth tank, and then we're going to do, you know, Avatar. You know, and you might have just listened to what I said and say, well, wait a second here, Doug, I, I don't get it. You went attacked by a stealth tank, which you explained those two very well, and then you're saying a person might choose as their, you know, bigger class unit, like a Redeemer. Well, that's an epic unit, just like the Salamander would be technically an epic unit. Um, why wouldn't you use a Redeemer? And th- the reason to why, from a placeholding standpoint, you wouldn't use something like a Redeemer, it, it will actually, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, it's the mechanics of what you're dealing with. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's truly the mechanics of what you're dealing with. Um, and the fact that you don't have a technological consistency among the three units. You have a technological consistency with the, you know, attack bike leading up to the stealth tank in this case. What you don't have is once when you jump into that redeemer role, you don't have the same level of consistency. You're not dealing with necessarily the same weapons, although technically I guess you could sit up here and put, you know, rocketeers in them. Um, you're not dealing with the same technological swag. You know, it's not like you, you're, you have like a stealth field that you're going to deal with, um, to that effect, or honestly, I would say, um, anything remotely close to that. You don't have that. The other thing you don't have is you don't have within its given, given arena, that lower cost to output ratio. You don't have that. And remember what I sat up here and told you earlier on in this episode, which is you have to look at, from a balancing standpoint, the the concept of the balancing, and then, in addition to the concept of the balancing, you have to look at the intended concept of what the faction is to represent. So, if you're talking about, in this case, the idea of a cost-to-output ratio, the Redeemer would flatline against something like a Salamander. That's how it would work. And it's, it's just the reality. That's exactly how it'd be. It would cost more to create a Redeemer than it would a Salamander. Just being fair about that. You know, so when you look at the Salamander, the Salamander isn't something that necessarily has to be, quote-unquote, heavily armored. All right? It, it doesn't have to be. I mean, granted, it's a capital ship, but if the intended role of it is that, compared to other capital ships, you can pump it out, and in addition... Two, comparing it to other uh, capital ships, your armaments are very, shall we say, primitive, because what you're talking about are simply just rockets on the thing. You know, it's basically a, uh, an, you know, a flying fortress. That's exactly what it is. Um, that in and of itself tells you how Nod is able to essentially build an epic unit in a mass-producible form, but at the same time, you know, what Nod is also able to do is it's it's able to mask, you know, the unit as a mass-producible unit. In comparison to other units within its class, like, for example, a Kodiak, which would cost much, much more. You know, like, two and a half times the amount. You know, I'm like, that. that's just how this works. So, when, when you think of this here in terms of 
the concept of balancing in terms of the concept of, you know, uh, placeholding in the master equation that it all has to run, you know, or work through. This is a very complicated thing because you have to do it with every single unit that you put into the game. You, you do. If, if you don't do that, you're gonna ultimately fail because you're going to have missed something that either is going to be detrimental to that faction or it's gonna be, you know, like, everyone's going to look at it and say, well, look, the only reason why these guys keep on winning is because, you know, my shit over here is like this, and then their shit over there is completely unbalanced like that. Now, when, when we talk about, again, this this concept of, of you know, placeholding and stuff like that, having placeholders, the thing that you really do want to keep in mind is how does it affect the game overall? Okay, So, again, it's about the idea of being able to go through and understand that you have to switch from unit type A to its upgrade unit type B to its upgrade unit type C. But you have to see it for what it is. You know, I can't tell you through game testing the countless numbers of times where the AI would not want to jump off of the attack bikes or not want to jump off of the the um assault buggies or would you know or the armored buggies uh it would not want to get off of something as sim- as simple as rocketeers and the reasoning for it is that it looked at the cost to build ratio to damage output and said, oh, this is the best way to pull this off. Let's do it like this. You know, which, from the standpoint of calculating, you know, DPS, damage per second, and then factoring in the cost ratio and the, um, you know, uh, the build time, yeah, I mean, like, Rocketeers would be a great idea. That's not a bad idea at all if that's what you're going after. Okay, against certain enemies. Alright. Except for one simple thing. Counter methods. See, there's this thing out there called counter methods. And you gotta remember that. So, like, for example, if you're talking about an Earth Federation GM, you know, first off, chances are it's gonna have a full shield or a half shield. Right? Right. Okay. Secondly, on top of that, it's gonna have head Vulcans. And what's gonna happen with those head Vulcans? Those head Vulcans are going to cut across and just cut the infantry down like it's nothing. You know, now granted, if you can take your horde of Rocketeers and place them up in buildings, that can be a different scenario, see? That can be a very, very, very different scenario, in fact. Okay, it would be. So, you're really, what you're doing is you've got to time or pace the game. So when we sit up here and talk about getting, you know, infantry and placing them in structures, are we talking that at beginning gameplay, mid-game play, in-game play, or we're talking, you know, epic gameplay? I'll tell you right now, by the time of epic gameplay, if you're just now throwing your infantry into structures, then you're just in a whole different heap of trouble altogether, because 
I'm going through with, you know, Pegasus class carriers and big tray carriers, and those structures aren't going to mean anything from an Earth Federation standpoint. Likewise, if you're talking GDI, they're coming in with Kodiaks and stuff. They're just going to use cruise missiles and take those structures down. Like, that's that's literally how it's going to happen. You know, but when, again, like, you think about this stuff, these are the kind of things that you have to think about from the standpoint of a development practice. You know, so a lot of times people will go, well, why did you take these units out? You had them in the game. Or why won't you guys put this unit in the game? Or why are you rewriting, you know, a faction that already exists in the game? And a lot of times it's based around these conversations. Now, these kind of conversations that me and Ryan have, like I did this in an hour and a half with you guys, right? Okay. Think about doing this with every single unit, every single unit and having a back and forth of at least two to three segments. Okay. So you think about, for example, if, if we were going with, you know, the Earth Federation, every GM that we place in the game, we have a conversation like this. And typically it's a back and forth. And in that, you, you basically have to make your point. And you've got to be incredibly thorough. You know? And in some cases, what will happen is you may run into a scenario where it's like, oh, we should do this, and it sounds good, and it makes perfect sense. And it's like, why doesn't the game already work this way? And then, of course, there can be a hiccup that says, ah, 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 you can't do this because it can't be scripted like that. Or the AI won't understand that, or whatever the case might be. So, you know, that's, you know, basically, you know, that's what I want to do for you guys for this episode is... I really wanted to talk to you guys about the concept of balancing and stuff like that. Um, and this will basically take me into my next episode, um, which is going to be uh, replays and results. Okay, replays and results. But in the way that I tend to like to do things, I tend to like to provide a backstory of context and then go into the main piece of what I want to go into. And that is just me as a podcaster. That's like one of my podcasting you know, ability. So the first thing it does is it gives a nice lengthy, um, and healthy length of episode, uh, when you, when you do that kind of stuff. The second thing is, is that providing context really does allow you, the listener, to effectively, you know, regurgitate exactly what's being said. So like, in other words, I can say you can listen to it and then you can regurgitate you know, to whatever amount that you were able to comprehend, you know, but it's, it's much easier to comprehend it from a regurgitation standpoint when there is a backstory that you're able to latch on to, or to an example that will lead into a greater lesson later on in the actual, you know, um, segment that we have, you know, that, that's just how it is. So, um, here's how it's going to work. Um, I am going to be for the first episode, I've already posted that up on, uh, talk shoe for you guys to listen to. And I'm actually going to now, after doing this episode, uh, I plan to at least take the, uh, 
the first episode and post it up on MOB for you guys to listen to. Okay, that that's what I, I plan to do. I wanted to get this episode out the way before I did that because I basically felt like I needed another dry run in order to make this work. And I didn't want the kind of dry run of, like in my first episode, which is, this is why we're doing podcasting, yada, 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 so on and so forth. Like, all too often when I start these things, I always do explain myself. You know, I'm always thorough in that respect of why I'm doing what I'm doing. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that I want it to be the launch pad for what it's going to be. Now, that it doesn't mean it's not the launch pad. I mean, obviously, it's the first episode, therefore, it would be the launch pad. But what it does also mean is that by me doing this other episode before I even release the first episode, I really have a good grounding of where I'm actually going. So when I'm asked questions and stuff like that, I already know where I've been, uh, what I've done, and where I can head into. So the next episode that I'm probably going to do, uh, to be honest with you, is going to be live. Um, I'm, I'm looking at doing something live and I will basically, uh, set it up like this. Um, I'm going to be doing it through a, a mobile app. Um, I will list the mobile app, you know, online for everyone to download from the Google play store. Uh, and from there, what will happen is of course we will have a live, you know, um, a live conversation. Now, because it's going to be the first one, I honestly don't even know how many people are going to show up if anybody actually shows up. And what I mean by that is this. When I did Robotech Fan, I probably did, realistically, about a good 10 to 20 episodes of Robotech Fan. Um, God, I was so much younger then. Uh, I did like 10 to 20 episodes before I did my first live episode. I did. And everybody was wanting me to do a live episode. So, so I finally did, you know, and I, and I liked it a lot. I did. Um, and, and I love live episodes. Like I love doing it live, but at the same time, I love doing pre-recordings too, you know, because you're really able to, you know, go through your thought process. And of course, if you don't like the way it sounds, you know, you're always able to sit up here and, you know, hit the delete button and so on and so forth. And that for me, um, really means a lot, you know, from that standpoint. So you can expect this next one to be live. Um, that's what I'm really gunning for. Uh, and my reasoning for that is, is very simple. Um, I want to start talking to you guys. I want to start getting things, you know, moving in a direction where, yeah, we're going to have a release, but you guys in terms of doing what you do on your end of enjoying it really are, are kept abreast and you really get to interact with us in a more, in a more, eh, we'll just say, communicative way. I wouldn't necessarily say personal, but communicative. Um, because the truth is, you can sit up here and ask us the same questions in an email that you could ask us on a, um, you know, on on a um, conferencing, uh, you know, setup. It's just that, you know, there can be good conversation involved. Um, now. For those of you who are, who are gonna obviously listen to this episode before, um, I even, uh, you know, do the live conference, um, here's gonna be my ground rules for the, the live conference. Um, the first thing is this, is you can ask whatever question you wanna ask, that's not a problem. Secondly, know the question that you wanna ask. 
Okay. Write them down. Know the questions that you want to ask. And then, you know, if you want to have follow-up questions to that question, you know, there, there's no crime in that. You know, you can ask all the questions you want to have. If you want to make a statement, for the love of God, be right about your statement. I don't want to have to correct you on my show. I hate correcting people on my show. Fourthly, don't sit up here and take shit personally. Don't. It, it's not, it's just not worth it. You know, don't get bent up out of shape. You know, how I sit up here and, and talk about you and what you say and how I talk about myself and what I say and what have you not, you know, it, it's all in good entertainment and fun. That's what it is. Okay. But don't get butt hurt over anything that you don't need to get butt hurt over. And I'm going to say the fifth thing and the last thing is this. Enjoy it. Just enjoy it. That's all you got to do. Enjoy it. You know, you don't have to come here and try to be, you know, the great sage of, you know, CNC or of Gundam or of, you know, Robotech um, in regards to this mod. You don't have to do that. Okay. You don't have to come here and try to set straight some of the misguided terminologies that I used in this segment. Um, because I know that it's not called a GM Customs Gun Cannon 2. I, I know that actually for a fact it's not called that. But most people would look at the damn thing and say, you know what, isn't that a GM Customs? Inside that extended, you know, suit of armor? And the answer is, yeah, it is. Um, it's been proven through model kit after model kit after model kit. That's exactly what it is. So my thing here is have fun with it. Don't, don't worry about being right 100% of the time, you know, in terms of the seriousness of the topic. Don't do that, you know, because then I'll have to go to school on you and, and then you'll be embarrassed. And trust me, I did Robotech fan. Okay. I, I know exactly how to hold my own in a podcast. It ain't no problem. I know how to hold myself in a conversation is no problem. Okay. Sometimes I'll say things the one I, the, the way I want to say them just because I want to say it like that. that. That's what it is, you know? And likewise, I would expect, for, you know, the same from you. Um, I, I know for Robotech fan, for a fact, sometimes I'll have people call in and say stuff and they're talking and I'm like, Oh my God, does this guy even know what he's talking about? And he, and he does know what he's talking about. It's just in the way that he's phrasing it. And it's like, ah, oh, oh, I don't even know if I should even have him talking, but in the end, you know, there's still a level of, of excitement that they'll be getting or enjoyment out of it, you know, and, and that's basically what this is. Okay. Now, um, on the flip side of that, if you have any concerns, then bring them up, bring them up. You know, if you have concerns in terms of, you know, the length of time that we've taken in terms of the concepts of balancing in terms of the AI, in terms of, you know, bugs and what have you not, you know, bring it up. It's not going to hurt my feelings. It's not going to hurt Ryan's feelings. We want to know. And this is actually one of the reasons to why we're actually doing a podcast now, you know. Now, I do want to point out not every episode is going to be, and can I stress this, not every episode is going to be a live episode. There will be episodes... <clears throat> that I will do that are pre-recorded episodes. I'm telling you right now, that is how I like to do a lot of things, you know, um, and they can be pre-recorded for a number of reasons. 
It may be just the fact that I feel like doing the episode at a given point in time. And I decided, okay, it's going to be pre-recorded. That's what it's going to be. I mean, Robotech fan got to a point where I was able to sit up here and hit that button, boom. And people were on it. Like, they were... Those guys were watching that thing, just like, when is he going to get on? When is he going to get on? Like, they were addicted to that stuff. Um, and then also with Robotech fan, you know, I, there were times when like, ah, I don't want to talk to these guys. I think I want to do an episode now. Boom. I think I'm going to do another episode. I like that episode. Boom. And then I'll just do one right afterwards, so on and so forth. So, like, literally, uh, the episode that I effectively did, um, uh, or I uploaded, I should say, um, I think it was last night I uploaded it or whatever. Um, I did that episode the day before at seven o'clock PM. The first episode I did at three o'clock PM. It's just, you know, Robotech gets so exciting that you just can't give it or give it up. You know, it gets into your blood or something. I don't know. But, um, yeah, that's what Roy Foker said in Robotech, first episode, as he, you know, popped open a Pepsi or something, you know, Pepsi can. Anyways, my point to what I'm telling you is, don't get offended if you do not see me do, you know, live chat after live chat after live chat after live chat. Okay, that's my point to what I'm telling you. And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up now is this. I don't want there to be a situation, of course, where we do a live episode, everything seems like it's great, you guys are really loving it, and then all of a sudden I go to a pre-recorded episode. And then you guys are like, what the F? He really sat up here and just did us like that. I thought he was enjoying it. I thought we all enjoyed it. Why is he up here doing a pre-recorded episode, and why isn't he doing something live? You know? And, and the other thing is this, if I feel that you guys are getting worn down from doing live episodes, then I'll do a pre-recorded episode. You know, I mean, like, I'm a podcasting veteran, okay? I got quite a bit of experience, all right? I do. Um, people who tend to come on the show and people who tend to sit up here and talk sometimes, they don't have that long-lasting durability, you know? And sometimes as a podcaster, you got to play off of their personality and, and, and carry them over the finish line. And, and that's cool, you know, that there's nothing wrong to that, you know? There isn't. You know, that's why it's my show. Um, but in turn, it doesn't mean that you need to mostly get distressed over those kind of situations. So if we have a situation where, let's say, we've got a, a listener who gets on as effectively a, um, a, uh, a standard caller, you know, and they start to, you know, just wear down over time you know, then it might be better off that we sit up here and do a pre-recorded here and a pre-recorded there, because for as often as they're on and for as often as they, you know, contribute to the show, telling them to sit this one out is well beneath their contributions that they give us, you know, so you got to be mindful of that kind of stuff, you do, um, and it's the kind of thing that you just say it in silence by doing a pre-recorded episode. That's what you do. You're like, okay, all right, I'm going to do a pre-recorded episode on this one because you know what? What's his face? You know, it seems like he's just getting tired and, you know, he's coming every day, but that doesn't mean that we need to, you know, have him talk uh, simply because, 
you can tell he's just, it's either that time of, you know, time of night where he needs to go to bed or God knows what else, you know, and, and believe it or not, um, I will tell you this, uh, doing the Robotech podcast, uh, when I do them live, I've got people who come into a chat, never talk on a mic and simply just, you know, message away. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Like, dude, why don't you guys talk it? They're like, oh, we don't want to talk. We were embarrassed to talk. It's like, oh, okay, all right, fine. Then I'll just do, you know, fine. If that's going to be the case, I'll just do a pre-recorded episode. Now, now, in all fairness, it doesn't mean I won't do a live episode with them. It just means like, hey, I can sit up here and get what I want out, say it the way I want to say it, not be interrupted, and so on and so forth, and then come back and do a live episode after the fact, allow you guys to collect your thoughts. You know, so so again, keep in mind when we talk about, I want to say, this concept of, of uh, a post-recording versus a pre-recording in terms of episodes, you got to understand that sometimes you do pre-recorded episodes so you can allow your fan base to build content for the post-recorded episodes, uh, meaning the live episodes, and they have a lot of content that they can work from, work off of from asking questions. So when I talk about fans you know, getting worn down or contributors getting worn down. I'm not saying they're getting worn down from the standpoint that they're just tired of talking about it. What happens is they don't have enough content to work from that allows them to carry a conversation over. That's what I'm talking about here. Okay. So I want to be clear about that. All right. So I've gone over my one, you know, 30, my hour and a half here. Um, well over that now. So, with that being said, you guys take care. Look out for the live announcement for the, um, you know, live episode. All right. Bye-bye.